0: Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinski. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast.
1: Our guest is a four-time Emmy winner for his work as Walter White on Breaking Bad. He also has won two Tony Awards and received an Oscar nomination for his work in Trumbo. His latest movie is The One and Only Ivan, now streaming on Disney+. Brian Cranston is here. Brian, thanks a lot for doing this, man. Oh, Steve and Sue, how are you? I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So let's talk about the one and only Ivan, which I watched this past week. A very sweet movie, family movie, brings a tear to your eye. Tell me about making that that movie. Is that all motion capture stuff? It
0: is. Uh, There are about 11 animals in the entire film, and none of them are real. Everything was CGI. So I'm working with these men in complete green unitards, including covering their face and which is not uncommon for me to be working with men at unitards, (laughs) but, uh, they're pushing around these, this big thing, metal contraption on wheels with green cover that would become the big elephant. Uh, the, the little elephant, there's a man inside a green suit. I mean, it's all, there's a puppeteer for the dog. There's all kinds of things. None of them are real. So it was, really interesting to be able to play opposite these potential animals and all I had to do was kind of memorize where their eyes were and where they're you know where I'm looking uh while I'm delivering my monologues uh it was it was it was unique but you know as an actor we're we're trained to to really embrace uh space work and and your imagination and and so that it wasn't extremely difficult actually
1: so you get offered all kinds of roles what's the what what made this the right one and what sort of is there a through line to the projects that you pick
0: yeah for me it's all about story am i moved by the story does it resonate with me not dissimilar from from you uh reading a, a good novel and you can't wait to get back to the next chapter that's what i look for too when i read a script is it, it, am i compelled does it engage me am i invested in these characters am i rooting for them uh the one and only ivan came to me when i was still in london doing uh, my play over there and i thought this is great because a family film a disney film no one does that better than disney Uh, but it it was very heartfelt and it's funny uh, and I thought this is the right thing to move to for me to do because it it did move me but also um, I I always like to keep moving I I was doing a lot of uh, dramas and so I wanted to do something lighter and this uh, family film was available and I thought yeah this is this is a good move and I'm glad I did. It's based on a true story, which Hmm. is a remarkable story.
2: So, you know, you've pivoted back and forth between drama and comedy. Is one or the other more challenging?
0: Comedy is usually harder to do on a consistent basis uh, because it requires timing and a sensibility of, of how much do you lean in on a line or pull back on a line? Do you deadpan it? Do you remark on it you put a little wink to it you know it's it's whereas drama you can deliver a line any number of ways and have it still be effective um but it's so that challenge is is great for me i love it uh you know i i was a, a recurring character on seinfeld oh yeah i was able to <laughs> watch the masters of jerry seinfeld and larry david and Jason Alexander and Julia driver and, and watch them work. And it was like going to comedy boot camp you know, to see mm. them sculpt a joke like a surgeon. And and timing was of the essence. And I remember a couple times Larry would say, wait a couple extra seconds before you deliver that line. Mm. Just just stare at him before you deliver you know, and it's like, sure enough, that enhanced the joke, the impact of the joke. It was really amazing.
2: Was there improv in in Seinfeld? Because I know Curb, so much of it is improvised. Was that the same thing in Seinfeld?
0: No, Seinfeld was carefully scripted. Um, it, it was very carefully scripted, and there there weren't too many times that you can veer off. Um, I did uh, occasionally. They they want you to. Um, I was the 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 dentist. On that show, Tim Watley mm-hmm. and I remember one time uh, that I was in the dentist's office and Jerry was in my chair and I was about to give him laughing gas and um, we rehearsed it and then they went away to another set and I stayed on my dental set so I can just get used to the stool and the, where the tools are and feel authentic and there was a guy on a ladder, an electrician, who said to me, "Hey, you know it would be funny," and I looked up and there's this electrician on a ladder i said it kind of i said okay what would be funny i'll give you that and he goes when you ask for the laughing gas why don't you take a hit of it first and then give it to jerry and i went oh my god that's hilarious so i did it i waited until the audience was there and we were shooting and i just took a chance i said "Uh, nurse man the Nitrous oxide. And boom, she gives me the the cord and the mask. I I take take a big inhale of it. (laughs) And I go, yeah, that's good. (laughs) And Jerry fell apart. It just fell apart. And uh, Larry loved it. And Jerry could not stop laughing. And they were, they were praising me. That was great, great, great. And I said, no, no, wait. The guy who, the, the guy who and he's not on a ladder anymore, and I'm desperately trying to find him. And I point to a guy, the guy who is now, his work is done, and he was like leaning against a door jam on the, on, on the stage. And I said, he is the one who gave me that bit. And everybody looked to him, and he gave this very confident shrug as if to say, I got a million of these.
2: (laughs) Cut to, he's on the writing staff.
0: (laughs) That's right. That's
1: right. How's that different from doing uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm? You did, you played the uh, shrink, I think, for Larry at Curb Your Enthusiasm. How's it different from doing Seinfeld?
0: It's a lot different. On Curb, Larry just writes out basically anything that needs to come out in this, in any given scene. Um, And it's total improv. So uh, the first time I did the show, I was a therapist, and which is fantastic. And, and I would just, uh, he, he would say, okay, um, you have to get out at some point that you and your wife uh, are fanatics about truffles, and it's truffle week at restaurants, and you're going to participate. And then Jerry, uh, I mean, uh, Larry's responsibility was to get out the fact that he hated the chair that I supplied for my for my <laughs> yeah. patient, yeah, and uh, and that's the only responsibility we had. So we we're doing take after take, and we we're cracking each other up. And you know, I, you just think of things. And I just said, okay, so Larry, uh, last week you were talking about how you like to go to the zoo and watch animals fornicate. Uh, are you still still doing that? You know, <laughs> and he's just busting up. <laughs> you know Uh, you know just anything
1: yeah i you know i started in uh, radio when i was 15 years old so i I knew exactly what i wanted to do with my uh with my career did you know that you wanted to be an actor when you were really young no i wanted to be a baseball player Mm. Uh,
0: uh baseball is my passion and my pastime and i i played it up until maybe 15 years ago when i just blew out my throwing arm and had to have surgery. But I think
1: that's was, how we met, isn't it? We met through Dave Singer, and weren't you playing on a baseball team with Dave Singer?
0: Yeah, absolutely, yes. We that's were how we out.
1: connected in the first place.
0: That's how we connected, I think, and I came on your show, and I had just uh, – that's 20 years ago, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Now that we met. And, um, yeah, but I, I, I could have become a professional baseball player if not for one thing, and that was – uh, talent um, <laughs> talent
1: so, yeah. <laughs> <A> yeah minor <laughs> yeah it's just if i had that i would have been a professional baseball yeah player. that hurts that hurts um let's let's do a little something so so we owned movie theaters together um, yes we did and we owned a 10 screen art house in palm desert called cinemas palm door um tell me just your overview your your 30,000-foot view of, of your experience as being part of this theater group?
0: Well, what I loved about it, Steve, is, is, is when we talked about being partners on that theater was, uh, was the fact that it was an art form, that we were telling stories, uh, and it was completely artistic. It was That's what really drew me in. I have this belief that humans, in the most lovely way, Uh, have always wanted to be told a story whether you're two or 102 you need to be told stories and that's what was so beautiful about this and whether you find your ability to tell stories in in painting or music or dance or film whatever or or, uh, writing uh, poetry uh, you have to seek it out and and having the movie theater was an adjunct to what I do as a for a living is tell stories so I write and direct and act and and to be able to then also have a, a, a mecca of a place in a little area that that we brought in films that made you think made you feel uh, m- sometimes made you angry made you rejoice uh, it was it was beautiful and we know that we have, we had a terrific, strong following out there, and are um, we're no longer in that business for a variety of different reasons. And now I look at the uh, movie exhibition business around the the world, and I wonder if it's going to be able to come back because it requires people to be in the same vicinity uh, for you know over two hours to experience
1: storytelling i am i'm
0: worried about it
1: what do you think the new normal for movie theaters is is going to look like
0: well i i think i think it's only i think we're going to see a drastic reduction in in movie theaters just the physical locations Mm -hmm. uh i don't i think art houses like what we had i think are going to be very few and far between um when you look at the home theater. And the advancement in technology in both picture and sound and convenience, you cannot beat the convenience. And the, now the screens are large and the sound, and it, it's, it makes it extremely difficult to get people to leave their homes, to go to another place, to be sitting next to someone they don't know now in this post, in what will be a post-COVID world at some point. Uh, i just think it's it's going to be virtually impossible so i think the the some of the the larger complexes will still have movies like tenant and and um, you know any big disney films or
1: mulan pictures like that uh, yeah. big big pictures and,
0: right and and superhero movies and things like that i think will be able to find an audience in, on the big screen. But, but for the most part, I think that, that life is, is over as we knew it.
2: Yeah. It's like, I wonder whether there's going to be, you know, seating that the seating is going to change dramatically, even if it is, I think in a, in a big theater, don't you think?
0: I do. You know? I do. I mean, and and I, I mean their whole thing is that they need to get as many people in the theater as possible and, mm-hmm. Um, are they going to be self-regulating or is it going to be an actual law that you have to be six feet apart from the next person there? uh And then how, how much time does that take? So does, does a, an usher go in after you and, oh, you, you two are together, so you'll sit here and then I have to tape off? uh, this, these rows uh, I, I
1: just don't, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, it's how, weird. How that it, work. It's going to be weird. You know, I, I, was remembering back, um, and I've mentioned the story before, but I remember you describing to me the pitch for Breaking Bad, sort of the elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 it sounded interesting, but I was like, did, did you know just from the, from the pitch that Breaking Bad was going to be a gigantic deal?
0: No actor knows if what, whatever project they're doing is going to be a hit. We just don't know. No producer knows that. If they did, they would just make hits. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, uh, the only thing that you can control is going back to when the question of what why do you choose what you choose, is what resonates to you. Can you identify well-written material? Can you see yourself investing your energies into something uh, of a story that, that compels you and moves you. And if, if you use your own self as a barometer, as I do, I think, all right, I'm all in on this story, and I hope people will follow. If, if they can get a chance to find it, I think they will. We have a chance to make a good story if the script is good. You have no chance of making a good story if the script is bad. So it all starts foundationally with the written word. So in
2: 1998, you were cast in an X-Files episode, which was written by Vince Gilligan. Ten years later, you're cast in Breaking Bad. If it weren't for the X-File role, would you have been on Gilligan's radar?
0: No. That sounds like a TV series, Gilligan's <laughs> <Gilligan-Gradar. laughs> Island. The, it's, the,
1: uh, it's the follow-up. It's the update of yeah. Gilligan's Island.
0: Uh, uh, no, um, you'd be talking to Steve Zahn or Matthew Broderick <laughs> or you know, someone else right now who played Walter White. No, it was it was a, a, a to be successful in our business, and I believe it's the same in your business that you need a series of breaks. You you need um, a mentor. You need someone to believe in you to be your champion. You need to keep working hard, and and eventually, if you get a series of breaks, you see doors opening for you. Um, and that's the same thing in on camera acting work as well. It's that you you need those breaks? I just very fortunate to be able to get that guest starring role on X-Files, you know, now over 22 years ago. Uh, and that's when I met Vince Gilligan. And the character that he wrote for that episode that I played happened to be a man who was despicable, hmm. doing was ugly in his manner, in his, in his words. Um, and yet he needed and wanted the audience to, to sympathize with him. And that was the the germ of the idea for creating Walter White, that despite his actions, he still needed an audience to to kind of root for him. And he wanted to test that. He made Walter White get darker and darker and less savory uh, as the seasons went on. And still, there were people who were still rooting for that man. And it, he wanted to see as a, as a social experiment. How bad could he make me uh, and still have people follow?
1: So there is a breaking bad universe that I that I talk about now El Camino, you made an appearance in, which sort of follows Jesse Pinkman's story. Uh, Better Call Saul's going on right now. We've had Ray Seahorn and Jonathan Banks on the podcast. Um, so I'll ask the obligatory... Would you be willing to come back and reprise the role of Walter White for the final season of Better Call Saul? I would do it in a second. I'd be on
0: the plane as soon as we hang up. Uh, uh, you know, I, I owe everything to Vince Gilligan. He's, he's a very dear friend of mine now, too. And so if Peter Gould, who's a showrunner of Better Call Saul – uh, and Vince Gilligan said, we have this idea, they wouldn't even have to finish the sentence. And I'm saying, I'll do whatever you want. Just uh, because, because I trust them so much and their integrity to, to protect those characters, I know that it wouldn't be a silly construct. It would be something that would be clever and unique, maybe even just a, a brush past one of the characters You know something that that would be uh, interesting to see, and I'm a you know I'm a fan of of Better Call Saul. It's really a great show. I I love it. And um, some friends that I I I knew and new friends that I'm meeting and uh, over the years. And so it's I, I would do it in a second. Whether or not that happens, I really don't know. I know they're in right now as we speak. They're in the writers' room developing the sixth and final season. Uh, and I have not been notified or anything. So, I mean, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too, because that means it wasn't right for that show. And and I'm okay with that.
1: You know, um, that night that uh, Walter White died um, and the entire world was watching Breaking Bad, it was like the cultural phenomenon of the moment at that point moment, that night, you were probably the most famous man in America, or at least right up there. What does that feel like, to have that all of that attention? Well, it's,
0: it's mostly good to be completely candid, obviously. As an actor, <laughs> you want opportunities, and celebrity brings opportunities. So I, I never poo-poo the, the life of a celebrity, and, and all the great a good fortune that comes with it and including financial security, which is an important thing. So that's all great. Uh, there is a sacrifice that you make. You are now a public figure. Um, I don't remember the last time I've left my house without being recognized and that sort of thing. And you kind of deal with that and tamp it down. When I go to a restaurant before COVID, um, my family and I, we we always go to a table where I would face the wall. Um, I would pick the worst seat hmm. to sit at because, hmm. because it gave me the most uh, highest percentage that we wouldn't be interrupted. And you have to develop um, kind of protocols for yourself. Like I had rules that when i came into a restaurant or place if i sat down that i wouldn't get up to take pictures or sign autographs um but i would tell them i really appreciate you know you saying those things about the show or the movie and if you want when we're done i'll i'll do it outside but i didn't want to i i I didn't want to take time away from my family and and do something that's apart from them um but I also wanted to acknowledge that I I'm really, really grateful for the good fortune that I've had. And you know, when I was doing my plays, when I do a, a Broadway play, I will sign every single play bill for every single person who attended that night. Hmm. I will stay there for an hour if it takes it and I'm take pictures and talk to them and sign their playbill because I'm really grateful that they spent really hard earned money to come see a play that i'm in and and i think they they deserve that
2: so speaking of plays i have to tell you that one of my biggest disappointments was not seeing you play howard beale on stage um i I just couldn't imagine how explosive it must have been to see that live um given that Um, You know, Peter Finch's performance was indelible. So I want to know, how do you approach a role that was iconic for the actor who originally played the
0: part? Well, uh, it's, you know, just by the fact that you are a different person, inherently, you will play it differently. Unless you are out to do an impersonation of of the actor who played that role before you. Uh, And I don't know any actors who who want to do that. You have to make it your own, which makes you comfortable on stage, which is one of the prerequisites to being able to perform well, is to be comfortable and relaxed on stage so that you're listening, so that the elements that you hoped would come into you at any given time, a level of emotion, anger, rage, despair, comes to you at that moment and you have to be in and focus on that so uh, i i look at anything in my preparation to do a character and to see how i would what avenues i think are are going to enhance that that experience for the audience um as well as as be an experience that you can enjoy as well so yeah, playing Howard Beale, an iconic character, on the stage in London and in New York was just an unbelievable highlight. Steve came.
1: Yeah, I did mm. see it. It was unbelievable. You know what was really uh, crazy was and we were invited backstage, which was really cool, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld was there, and I was so intimidated by Jerry. I was just like, that's Jerry <laughs> that's Seinfeld. I, I introduced yeah. myself, and I didn't get much further than that. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and,
0: you know, it's amazing that the, in that environment, I had so many people come backstage from, from show business and music and politics and sports. And it was just, it's, it's they're in awe of that. And for an actor, it's, it's the best place to be. It's the most rewarding place to be for an actor going through an experience to be on stage. Um, you can have a great experience watching a film after the fact that you were in. But most of the time, the great majority of the time, when you're making a film or a television series, it's not as fulfilling as, as it, you think it may be. But when you do a play that has a beginning, middle, and end every single performance, you're going through the whole the gamut of, of emotions and uh, it's it's just a, just so it fills you up and makes you um, feel empowered when you feel the the sense of the audience and it, there is a relationship that an actor on stage has with an audience sending out a signal and they their reaction sends it back to you mm. and you you have the responsibility of guiding them through that story and and i i just love it
2: when you're doing a long run like that how do you keep just being so f- focused like night after night after night yeah how like, do
1: you keep it from becoming rote yeah you mean like your show steve <laughs> like, you yeah, exactly. it from your... Like, yeah like our show yeah. just wrote, yeah. mail it in yeah. where are the stamps yeah, i'm really. gonna mail exactly. this in.
0: <laughs> well, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, I, I just mentioned that, that it's, it's more rewarding for me, and I think m- many actors who do stage and film it's more rewarding to do stage in the on-at-the-moment ex- on, experience, but it's also more taxing. It's tiring. It's, I, I get more exhaustion from doing stage work than I do in doing film work almost regularly. I mean, that's just a given because if a play is well-written, it has a range of emotions for those characters to go through and you're doing the entire thing. So you're wringing yourself emotionally, physically, every performance, eight performances a week in in most Broadway uh, schedules. And uh, you just, I need my sleep. You, you know, you kind of live, um, a, a sheltered life. You go to the theater and you get it ready and you pound it. You know, I say, yeah, punch it in the face. Whatever image, you know, gives you that kind of assertiveness. I get my cast together and I get charged up and I say, let's lean into it. You never want to lean back hmm. as as well as you are familiar with that material. You've been doing it for months and months and months and you could easily at times, you're very human, and at times you catch yourself going, "Oh, she said that a different way. That's interesting. Oh, did you hear that guy coughing? That guy is, which guy is coughing in the audience? You know, <laughs> and you're, you're still speaking the lines of the play, and you're looking at a different area." And it's like, okay, don't get caught. Don't get caught. You know
1: what? That's so weird, Brian, because when I, as you know, I was, I was uh, an actor when I was younger and, you know, I'm sure someday mm-hmm. I'll be a really big deal. Um, but uh, when I was, when I was acting, I would, I would say the lines, but I'd have, you know, like my grocery list in my head. You know, I would be thinking about whether I should ask Sherry Heineman to go with me and stuff like that <laughs> while, while I was doing, I think that makes me a, a bad actor who's not in the moment, right?
0: well it just it, it you didn't have the uh, depth of experience uh, over time you realize that just like you know in sports when you go from one level to the next to the next uh, the talent just starts getting sharper and sharper and when i when it comes to this talent incorporates that idea of being able to focus can you focus on your character What does your character want right now and need? How do you feel about this person you're talking to? And you keep staying in that moment. Um, Just stay on it. And that's what I tell my casts when when I'm doing a play. It's like we lean into it. It, If you can visualize on your toes, leaning forward, Mm -hmm. as opposed to back on your heels, which seems too relaxed and too... I don't know. Um, whatever happens, happens, kind of thing, right? And, and right. I, yeah.
2: So that that's that's it. When you know, when a role is 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 over, I mean, not maybe not so much a movie, but I would think stage work maybe more intense. Um, you know, how long does it take for the character to like kind of like leave your body? You know, before you go home. I mean, are you carrying that with you? I mean, do you find yourself like, oh God, I'm Howard Beale right now?
0: No, I I've well, you'd have to ask my wife that. Uh, there's, there's probably times I do bring it home, but um, over the I've been acting for forty-one years now professionally, so it, it I've I've become accustomed to being able to attach talismans to me and my characters, and then in so doing disconnect from those things. So, like when I was doing Breaking Bad, at the end of a day when I'm filled with toxicity of of the story of what Walter White was doing or or we're out in the middle of a sandstorm and you literally have everything in every orifice, just sand and dirt. And um, I would go, at the end of the day, I'd go into the makeup and hair trailer and take two hot, moist towels and I'd wrap one on my bald head like a turban and I'd wrap another one across my face and the back of my neck like I was getting a professional shave and I would just leave it there and sit in the chair and allow the heat and the moisture just to pull everything out. Just to just that sensibility almost meditatively to let it come out of my system. I'd wipe it all off. I'd put some moisturizer on. I take off Walter White's clothes completely and hang them up, put on my own street clothes and get in my car to drive home and then I would call my wife and uh, whether she was at our apartment in Albuquerque or home in Los Angeles uh, that would be our time together as we're you know it, you just have to make the best of it and um, those those I don't know kind of rituals were uh, I was able to let go so same thing with doing Howard Beale on Broadway is like I took off uh, oh I had about 12 ties that Howard Beale wore. Hmm. And one of my rituals was I tied all of them myself. And before every show, I would tie my ties. And that helped start. It was like doing the same activity before something. And it was like being in the training room or wrapping your legs if you're going to go do a sporting event. Uh, and it it kind of said, "Okay, here we go. We're starting to develop this thing." And by by uh, seven p.m. that night, when our show started, you're ready. You're ready to punch it in the face and get every ounce of energy you have and leave it on the stage, just like you want to leave it on the field, and and walk away and and be happy with what you did. And if you made a mistake, just note it. Don't get down on yourself, just like an athlete, and come back the next day.
1: You know, you've built characters from the ground up. Walter White, uh, LBJ for all the way, Dalton Trumbo uh, for Trumbo. Do you start with like, do you start with an accent? Do you start with a posture? Do you start with an emotional life? Where do you start in building a character? It depends on if it's fictional or non-fictional, um, for LBJ, a
0: non-fictional character, you have a greater responsibility because that man did something noteworthy to be able to have them write something about him that people remember. So your research begins with, with um, going to source material, reading his autobiography, talking to his children and his lawyer, his speechwriter, of which I did have access to, and and then going down to Austin, Texas, to the LBJ library, and they're so helpful. And whenever, whenever an actor, well, I should speak for just me because I don't know about everyone, but I, I assume they do the same thing. When you begin the process of developing a character, you don't know exactly what you're looking for. So you want to be like a, an open funnel. Just take everything in. Take it in, even if you don't know if you'll ever use it, bring it in, put it into your psyche, read it, put it in, in the hopper, let it swirl around and whatever you don't end up using, you'll, it'll go out the bottom, bottom side. So it's like, okay, so you just keep, keep taking it in. And, um, because uh, you, you never know, it's kind of like putting a bouquet of flowers together. Hmm. Uh, you know, you're like, Oh, this, these look nice. And you add to it and then you realize, oh, I think I like them better when they were by themselves and not with all these other, you know, you start to uh, take and put back and take and put back and until you get to a place where you feel like, oh, this character is now inside me. Hmm. And that's the goal. And you start every project not knowing for sure if that'll happen, but trusting that it will. Uh, Steve, you remember the trust exercises when you first start as an actor? I do. I do. Yeah. The partner and you say, okay, uh, fall fall backwards. Yeah. (laughs) And the first time you do it, you go, wait, are you really going to catch me? I mean, (laughs) and it's like, you, you have to learn to trust. And that's a big thing uh, in my business.
2: So at this point in your career, you know, I would assume that you have a lot of creative freedom to shape your characters. Have you ever worked with directors who had a certain vision that you didn't agree with?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, and it, it all depends on the, on the auteur's if you're working with Wes Anderson, as I did on on uh, Isle of Dogs, Isle of Dogs, yeah, he writes and directs. It, that vision is so embedded in his head that uh, with auteurs, you don't necessarily have to understand every aspect of what your character is doing or where it's going. Um, you use the trust exercise, and you go, "Take me away. What, what would you like? How do you want me to do this?" and and trust that he or she will tell you all you need to know in, in order to uh, develop a, a well-rounded character and, uh, you know, Richard Linklater and, and Steven Spielberg. And, and you just, you just give, give over to them. Um, when you're developing something like a television series or a limited series or a movie with a, a different writer than a director. And we lost that director and new directors coming in and the producer, it's more of an amalgamation it's more of a collaboration of those figures the writer director producer and actors to be able to come together and and all realize and you have to get to the point where you go okay we all know we're heading in this direction good now some may take it faster or slower and some may take a different route but this is where we're going and that's the really the only thing you can uh, need to start
1: so you and uh, Robin both contracted uh, COVID back in March. What Nice segue, Steve. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Total left smooth. turn, right? Yeah, smooth, smooth. <laughs> Let's go to the COVID part of the uh, interview. <laughs> Got these questions written out in line. Uh, what, what was what was it like? What were the symptoms like? Uh, all that kind of stuff.
0: It's so strange. As we speak, it's almost exactly six months ago.
1: Hmm.
0: Um Yeah, it was early March, very early on that, um, my wife started to feel something happening. And because I go to work with 175 to 200 different people on a soundstage, uh, it was important that she check and see where she was and she had it and she gave it to me because I was with her every day. Uh, in LA here at our house. And I just assumed I had it as well. And I actually did. Um, We were very fortunate, extremely fortunate. We felt uh, two days of achiness, but not enough to keep you in bed. Hmm. So it wasn't terrible. It was just that feeling of something's coming on that, oh, man, I just... You feel like stretching and your skin feels delicate and, and tender. And it's like, oh, I don't know what, what that is. And then I had a half a day, like four or five hours of a slight temperature of 99.8. That's it. And then the next day that was gone. Um, the achiness was gone after two and a half days. And then we had about a week of, of extreme exhaustion. We're just, we had no energy. It was, oh, can we take another nap? <laughs> Which I know we just got <laughs> up from one, but, uh, and, and the last thing that lingered was the loss of taste and smell. Uh, that, those senses just went away for a while. They've slowly been coming back and my sense of smell now is back to maybe 70%. Um, if someone's brewing coffee in the kitchen, I cannot smell it. Hmm. Wow. I can but if I open up the the, the coffee bean bag I can I'm stick my nose in it I can smell that so it has to be really potent for me to smell something
1: okay I got a stupid question one we debated on the show if you had to give up one of your senses yeah which one would you give up
0: uh, it would be um, uh, I guess it would be, wouldn't be sight. It wouldn't be hearing. Can't be touch. Uh, oh, touch. You don't want to lose that. Uh, I guess it would have to be sense of sm- Well,
1: smell. Yeah. Smell. Or t- Yeah. I think it would be. I think smell is pretty much the right answer. Um, yeah, I wonder smell, if it- smell for me too. Well, I wonder
0: if that's what happened. If some if we played that game and someone said, "Okay, let's see how you do."
1: Let's go with no uh, smell. Let's go with no smell. Uh so we had uh, we had Dr. Amber Moyne from UCLA on the show last week and she talked about plasma as being an effective treatment for uh COVID. You're uh you were on our show this last week and you were talking about donating plasma. What's what's that process? I I heard it hurts. Does it hurt? No. But you have a low tolerance. (laughs) Very low tolerance. Very low. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
0: No, it, uh, it uh, honestly, it does not hurt the phlebotomist there at UCLA where I go. It's, I, it's as if someone took your inner arm by your elbow and, and just slightly pinched. And that's it. It's I'm, I'm not kidding. It's nothing. And, um, I, Go, I, I will go again next week, actually, for my fourth time wow. because I still carry the antibodies. And what they do is they take a, just a fraction of my plasma and they'll give it to a patient who has COVID, who, is, who needs help and is being much more drastically affected than I was. And uh, that helps kickstart their own immunities and help fight off the effects of their own condition. So uh, it seems like the uh, it's a no-brainer to me that I was very fortunate in, in going through my COVID experience. So now maybe my plasma can help someone else.
2: So what's the state of uh, work for you right now? I mean, I, I work in reality. I, you know, I just, I finished recently remotely from home. You know, I pr- was producing a cooking show for Netflix. Mm-hmm. So it was all shot, you know, before the pandemic. Um, what's going on with, with show? I hear that some stuff is kind of slowly coming back.
0: Yeah. Um, we're actually targeting uh, the 7th of May to continue with a show that I'm very excited about that I'm uh, in and producing called Your Honor for Showtime. And we have a, an order of 10 episodes and we're, we have about two more months of shooting. So we're shooting in New Orleans, a great town, and so we're going back to New Orleans. I'm going back at the end of this month, and the protocols are ridiculous as far as stringent rules and regulations about what we will be doing and what we will not be doing. Um, All actors will be tested three times a week uh, to make sure that everyone stays clean. We're asking everyone to really button it down, use the mask. Uh, social distancing wash your hands don't go out don't socialize in big groups uh if you do socialize make sure there's distance do it outside so all these things are are coming into place and and this is through showtimes um you know uh higher ups that that are recommending these and, and they're good, good policies to follow.
1: So one of the things that's helping to get us through the uh, pandemic is the Dodgers, huh? Seven straight division titles this year. We'll make it eight. Uh, is yeah. this the best Dodgers team ever?
0: Well, I, I'm so old. I've, I, I first went to the Coliseum in 1961 oh, wow. uh, to watch um, the Dodgers play. And I, I was a little boy but I remember that. In fact, my production company is called Moonshot Productions. And uh, uh, that was named after Wally Moon, who used to do a little chip shot uh, up and over the netting in left field huh. for a home run, much like the, the, the monster at Fenway. And he would find a way to, to just do a little golfing chip shot. <laughs> and uh, it was it was great. And so I, I, I took that. Uh, as my as my company's title because he he saw an obstacle and he figured out a way to adjust and adapt to the realities of things and succeed and so that's kind of like is our our credo but yeah the dodgers i'm i'm excited about them um i i love the energy and you know mookie is fun to watch and you know there's a the pitching has been really spectacular yeah um and The hitting has been a little spotty, but despite that, the pitching has been so strong and the timely hitting that um, we're doing exceptionally well. I'm very excited. It's still odd, though. It's still weird. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I'm looking at the schedule, and I used to look at a schedule saying, hey, when can I go to the stadium? And I look at the schedule now, and I go, hey, oh, that's right. It doesn't matter. Yeah it's all on television, and
1: I can't see that in person. Well, it's weird, too. We're already two-thirds of the way through the season. Just no, kidding. in a Two blink, third. we're two-thirds of the way through the season in a 60-game season. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've we had this debate a lot uh, on uh, Mason and Ireland. Whether or not this Dodgers run seven straight division titles, now eight, uh, World Series in twenty seventeen stolen from us by the lion cheating Houston Astros. Yeah. Is this era of Dodger baseball a success? Why
0: not? It's still baseball. Um, I think I think management has done a terrific job. Even when they you look at a guy, a 30-year-old pitcher named Ross Stripling, who was just shipped off to Toronto. And there's going to be a lot of fans going, why? He's a, good, he's a good guy to step in when we needed someone. And I read between them, Andrew Friedman uh, mentioned something. He said, we got two, um, two rookie uh, players back from them that were to be named yep. later. He said, one of them is going to fit in really well to this new crop of player. And I just go, oh, that's going to be great. No offense to Ross Stripling, but when that player gets into the majors and they're going to say, hey, we got him for Ross Stripling, you're going to go, wow, what a steal. Yep, He's so good. Yeah, Friedman, I think,
1: is playing three-dimensional chess.
0: Yeah, he really is. And he doesn't sell out the future for the present, but he negotiates that. Do we really need something? And I think standing pat, uh, as far as acquiring players, that helps us this year I think is the right move I think we have the players they just have to perform
2: so there have been a couple of new rules that have been um incorporated during the shortened season the man on second in extra innings the dh in the nl um do, do you think that this is going to carry over next season if you know if there is a full season next season
0: I actually do I think uh and uh, the Players Association is going to approve the DH in the National League. Ah. Um, <laughs> Listen to Sue. <laughs> you, well, uh, don't you
1: think so? I mean, whether uh, yeah. you like I, it or not, I'm just not a fan of it. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to miss the strategy. Of, uh, yeah, me too. Baseball. It's much more
2: exciting to me to decide whether to take a pitcher out and to, you know, to let them hit, you know, for themselves. And, yeah. you know, let the people have that argument. Oh, well, you know, how many times does a pitcher, you know, get a hit? And I say, well, you know, when they do, it, it's great. <laughs> right. You know,
0: it, it's, you know, it's it, if your team is in the field and the a pitcher is coming up, you you feel better because it could kill a, a, a rally. Um but uh, i think i think by and large the fans are going to embrace it and i think the players association is going to prove it because the because because it gives more opportunity for journeyman uh, batters to have a job on a team and pitchers by and large they don't want to hit there's only a few that really like to hit otherwise Sit, rest, don't worry about getting injured running the bases and things like that anyway. So I think that's going to stay. I also think that they're going to look at this extra innings, man's on second base thing and give it some serious thought that this might be the way it's going to be from now on. I think that is – going to be accepted as well. Sue is, yeah, I, don't Sue like it. I don't like that. Rumbling I, don't like
1: it. Well, I, don't,
2: I don't like it because I just feel like, you know, you're giving somebody second base just f- arbitrary. It's like free. And you're doing it because, <laughs> you know, basically because you want to shorten the game. You know, they always want to shorten the game. And they, you know, it's like, oh, well, younger people aren't as interested. And it's like, if you don't like baseball, you know, making the game a little bit shorter isn't all of a sudden going to make you passionate about the game. Either you love it or you don't. Yeah, but
1: I got I to disagree. I think the extra innings thing, which I thought was going to be just a debacle because I'm a traditionalist to my bones. I, I hear that a game is an extra innings and I will switch over to it on MLB pass, whether it's Dodgers or not, mm. just because I love the excitement of starting basically every inning in the middle of a rally. I think it's really exciting. Mhm. Uh,
0: hey Sue, can you just say, "You kids, stay off my lawn." <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
2: No, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, like, like, like Steve said. You know, I am definitely a traditionalist, but yeah. I just feel like they're changing the game. You know, to cater to to people that aren't, you know, as as in love with the game that as I yeah. am.
0: Yeah, you know, there's that so. purity and i i i'm right with you when i heard these rule changes i thought I, i'm an old national league guy and i like the pitcher batting but I'll, I'll accept this i mean you know they used to have the mound was several inches higher than it is now and the, the balls are different and what you can do with bats and lengthens and, you know who knows um but there's those rules, I think. What do you think about the the relief pitchers having to either finish an inning or pitch to three batters?
1: You know, I think that's just a necessary rule. And I think it's working perfectly, by the way. Um, it, it makes it, – it, it allows front offices to collect guys who get both lefties and righties out. And it's bad for guys that are situational lefties. The guy who comes in and just gets one out, that guy it's really bad for. But I think, again, in the interest, here's, here's my view. My view is I love the game of baseball. I love it the way it is. I love it the way it was 50 years ago. But I want it to have the broadest possible audience uh, that, that it can get. And so if that means sacrificing some of my traditionalist values to add some gimmicks and some wrinkles, I'm for it. Well, you
2: know, if they, they should have a goalie in, in <laughs> golf that someone stands by the cup <laughs> So, so Ew, you, and it blocks the uh, golfer from Ew. getting, from
1: putting in. Ew. Sue's going Stay really hard. Stay off my lawn. lawn is right. <laughs> so, uh, so Brian, what do you think of the, the recent social justice uh, protests by professional athletes?
0: Well, I was in favor of Colin Kaepernick's uh, very respectful uh, protest years ago. And when I would come up with people saying, that's just wrong, that's just wrong. And it's like, why is it wrong? He's being incredibly respectful. He is not uh, moving. If he was moving and, and trying to be a distraction, that's one thing. If he was talking and, 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 and not allowing others to, to uh, appreciate the national anthem as they choose to, that's another thing. But he takes a knee, quiet, silent, not moving. That's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant and respectful pro- form of protest. Mm-hmm. I, I just never understood anything that was said against it. And you know, I mean, of course, they're they're trying to tie that in with being anti-flag or anti-military, and it's like those are ridiculous arguments. Could have had nothing to do with that. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I think, I think it's necessary. We're, we're in the middle of a, of a revolution. And I think we have an opportunity, not just with black lives matter, but also before that a year before that we had times up movement, we have a chance to reframe and, and, and reconfigure the foundation of how we operate as human beings, mutually respectful of, a person's sex a sexual orientation of color of race of religion and and just em- embrace it all with mutual respect and i think we're we're uh, that part of it makes me really excited that we have this opportunity to to accept and not only tolerate but embrace the protest as mm-hmm. as a part of a learning process and you know when things change it's never clean it's never simple you look back in history; any revolution, it's messy, and there are messy times that we're going through right now, and we we have to accept some of the messiness of that in order for the greater good to come out of it.
1: You know, yeah. every every great interviewer, Brian, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh no, Here we go, writes out a last question. Ah, so I've got the last question right now. Okay. Um, you played Howard Beale. He yelled, "I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore." What makes you mad as hell?
0: Uh, I think I think that the, the incivility makes me mad. Makes the, the, when someone has a different point of view, and this is really what I've been trying to be on the vanguard of in the last several years is trying to bring us all together. Whatever your views, conservative, liberal, progressive, um, far-right, uh, religious, what, it, it, please accept that if someone disagrees with your ideology, that they are not out to destroy the country. Let's put away that rhetoric, that, that hyperbole, that is only destructive and divisive. Let's just say, okay, you, you have a plan to improve the country that is diametrically opposed to the way I think we should improve the country. Okay, well, let's talk about it. But we both want to improve the country. That's the goal. Um, So, okay, I'm not not saying that you're out to destroy the country. Let's sit down and talk. Find where we have common ground and build from that. Right now, the political system is just so finger-pointing and just so ugly and and disrespectful and and uncivilized really yeah. that it's it's really sad to see that that makes me angry
1: mm-hmm well listen uh brian really appreciate you doing this thanks for hanging out for a little while um uh, hopefully fun. hopefully see you in person sometime soon sometime soon it would
0: be good steve and, and i look forward to meeting you too and i promise i'll stay off your lawn
2: <laughs> i don't have a lawn brian
0: if you had
1: a lawn i would stay off it <laughs> all right awesome brian thanks man
2: thanks Brian. thanks Sue.
1: Uh, bye guys there he is, Brian Cranston. Had you ever met Brian?
2: No, I've seen him at your house a couple of times, but the opportunity didn't arise for me to meet him for some reason. He's a real jerk, isn't he? He is such an <laughs> asshole. Nicest
1: guy he's in a, the world.
2: I know. He's but just so cool, and you know, just smart and
1: just fun. Yeah, he's a he's a great, great guy. Yeah, I, we met all the way back when he was doing Tim Tim Watley on <laughs> Seinfeld. It's been, been, I've done for twenty five years now, and uh, little did I know when we first met he would become one of the biggest stars in the world, which is just crazy to me still. Well, Um, just just
2: seeing his path, you know, it's just you know talk about playing against type, you know, especially in the beginning of his career, you know. I, I actually watched Drive. I hadn't seen that movie. Oh, it's such a good movie. Oh, it's great. It was so good. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was amazing. But just the direction and, and Ryan Gosling's character, I mean, just so, so you just still. So you
1: just watched that movie, right? I just watched it uh, this okay. past week. And so do you remember, uh, this is a spoiler alert, but the movie is a good 15 years old. Uh, do you remember how Albert Brooks killed Brian's character? He had that razor blade, and he just went right up. Uh, That was Brian's idea. Brian said, "Let's do this because there's something gentle about killing someone you like that that can be accomplished with this razor blade up the inside of the arm." Yeah, that was all Brian.
2: Well, you know, I, I listened to an interview uh, with him about the movie, and one of the things that he said, counter to Ryan Gosling's character, who was just very still and, and deliberate and didn't have as much dialogue as everybody else, he said that his character needed to kind of pick up the slack there, so he, he came up with the idea to just talk a lot and be more of a motormouth. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, very interesting. And it, and it was
1: perfect. Yeah, it, it did work. That's a really, really cool-looking movie, too. Oh, God, it was great. And the soundtrack was great. great. L.A. looks great. Yeah.
2: And and just the fact that they cast Albert Brooks in that part. You
1: know? <laughs> okay, so you want to hear another funny story about this this movie. So Albert Brooks, there was tons of buzz that we, he was going to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did not get the nomination. And that morning, he tweeted out, you don't like me. You really, really don't like me.
2: <laughs> how perfect. <laughs>
1: oh, it's such a, great line. it's actually, such a great line. I
2: actually wanted to ask Brian, didn't, the opportunity didn't come up, but I wanted to say to him, you know, like playing against someone like Albert Brooks, who's like one of the funniest people in the world. Yep. You know, how, how I, because when I see him, all I hear is like the desert inn gets, you know, hat the desert inn has heart, or the nest He's egg, you know, had. the whole rules of the nest egg, and I hear all these funny lines coming out of that 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 you know, just his his just his voice makes yep. me laugh, and and here he is playing this just like despicable, like just evil evil character, and and what it must you know, what I always wondered what it's like to play against somebody who's Really funny, and and in between takes, like like, do they make you laugh in between takes? Do you have to like be separated from them because it's going to take you out of character? Right, um, right,
1: yeah, that was yeah. Great. That's a that's a very very good movie. If you've never seen it, uh, Ryan Gosling, Albert Brooks, Brian Cranston, uh, Ron Perlman, if I remember right, is yep. in that movie too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really really cool movie called Drive. All right, so our friend Jacob, and Ronnie Sue. Mm -hmm. Uh, is the one who makes this entire show possible. And you, you realize that right now, it seems like maybe there aren't a lot of people on the roads, but it's weird. Jacob showed me some statistics, and even when traffic is down, people start driving recklessly because they think they've got the roads to themselves. So one of the things that Jacob wants everybody to know is that the moment, any kind of accident happens, accident or injury, uh, you want to make sure that you have your rights protected so that you can get that big settlement at the end of the day. So anytime, day or night, literally scene of the accident, people can call Jacob and he will make sure you say all the right stuff, deal with the insurance company, all that stuff, 24 hours a day, call Jacob, eight four four twenty-four jacob that's eight four four twenty-four jacob Eight four four twenty four Jacob or Sue, are you ready? I'm ready. Accident, Accident or injury. injury? Call, call Jacob. Jacob and Ronnie. Ronnie call call Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, he's not going to be happy with that.
2: Well, you know, you say that every time. So you know what? Why don't <laughs> you just sing it? No,
1: no, he wants a
2: duet. He wants a duet. He's oh, oh, for a duet. Oh, really? Oh, he he specifically said that. Yeah, he said I. I, want a I actually that. want to talk to Jacob. <laughs>
1: uh well sue congratulations
2: congratulations on what
1: this is our 75th Episode of the Culture Pop Podcast. Oh my God, it doesn't look a day over 60. There you go. Yeah, Uh, the show is uh, continuing to roll on and uh, we appreciate everybody out there, people listening. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It's really easy if you go to stevemason.com, click on uh, the uh, subscribe button for either Spotify or iTunes and then you're in. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Thanks a lot to Brian Cranston. Sue, I will see you next time. I will see you. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next week for an all-new episode of Culture Pop.